The American Council of the Blind presents ACB Reports, a monthly news magazine featuring topics of interest to people who are blind or have low vision. I'm Mike Duke. This month... Meet Kathy Martinez, President and CEO of Disability Rights Advocates. Welcome to ACB Reports for November 2021. At 7.30 p.m. Eastern Time on Thursday, November 18th, the American Council of the Blind will host its 2021 Audio Description Awards Gala. The event will honor significant achievements in media that paved the way for the audio description standard, as well as recognize the best of the television, streaming, and film industry's commitment to accessibility for blind and low-vision audiences in the form of audio description. The celebration will be aired live at 7.30 p.m. Eastern Time on Thursday, November 18th on adawardsgala.org and on Peacock. It will also be heard on ACB Media 6 on the ACB Media Network. Visit adawardsgala.org for more information about this free virtual event. The American Council of the Blind Scholarship Application Window is now open through February 14, 2022. Established in 1982, the ACB Scholarship Program has now partnered with the American Foundation for the Blind, AFB, to offer educational scholarships ranging from $2,000 to $7,500 for blind and visually impaired students attending a technical college or as an entering freshman undergraduate, or graduate student. This program awards students with scholarships to help with post-secondary education financial needs such as tuition, fees, room and board, and additional costs associated with adaptive technology. To be eligible for a scholarship, applicants must be legally blind, maintain a 3.0 grade point average for most scholarships, be either a full-time student or a student who works at least 32 hours a week while attending college part-time, and be involved in their school and local community. To find out more, visit acb.org scholarships. From the American Council of the Blind, you're listening to ACB Reports. Kathy Martinez of Berkeley, California, is the president and CEO of Disability Rights Advocates. During the 60th Annual Conference and Convention of the American Council of the Blind, she described the career path that led her to this job. You know, it's really an honor to be speaking for you guys. I have been a a member of the blind community for a long time. A little bit about me, and then I want to talk about the work that DRA is doing and the work that we're doing with the American Council of the Blinds. I uh, was born blind quite a while back. I'm part of a very large Latinx family. I have a blind sister who you all probably know, Peggy. Um, So Peggy and I were the two, or still are, the two middle kids of six. I would say we were very lucky. We uh, had one of those sets of parents who really encouraged us. Um, who expected things, who had high, relatively high expectations, I would say, sometimes too high. 
Now, the fact that we were raised in a very large family, I think, really helped prepare us for adulthood. Um, she and I were also mainstreamed, and I think that's obviously a very different experience than somebody who went to a school for the blind. As a person who, you know, was coming to age in the 70s and 80s, I guess, I was very active in various movements before I got involved in the disability rights movement. We lived near Strawberry Fields in Southern California, and I was very taken by the situation that I would find or noticed um, farm workers in. I was got very involved in the, in the youth movement of the, youth, the United Farm Workers. So I, I was able to identify with the Latino side of me and, you know, learn a little bit of Spanish. Although my parents did speak Spanish, but we didn't really speak it as kids too much. So I actually had to learn it as a teenager and young adult. Then, of course, the, the women's movement was in full swing at that time. So while I really loved the work of the farm workers movement and the women's movement, and the LGBTQ movement, I didn't feel like I was completely included. I think they really didn't understand how to include a blind person. At that time, we didn't, really didn't have much. We had, we would, I would carry around my Perkins Brailler in my backpack because uh, I was a terrible slate and stylus user. But I learned a lot from them. I learned about political organizing. I learned about how... There's no such thing as an oppression hierarchy, right? Um, if you come from a marginalized group, your oppression is just as valid as anybody else's. So it wasn't until um, really 1977 when I discovered the disability rights movement. I had no idea what that was. I didn't know there was such thing as disability pride. I was um, actually at the Orientation Center for the Blind in Albany, California, when I got a flyer saying um, there's this demonstration to protect and defend our civil rights, I went to the uh, San Francisco Federal Building. I did not go inside because I didn't want to get kicked out of OCB. Although I have to say the staff was very supportive in kind of a down low kind of way, but they really were. So I went, I, I discovered, wow, I mean, being at that 504 demonstration, uh, it hadn't turned into a sit-in yet, but it was heading in that direction. The thing that I found was there were so many different groups of people. There were folks from the Black Panthers, folks from the blind community, the deaf community. There was this incredible cadre of people with a variety of disabilities. And even the, the farm workers, uh, UFW, you know, supported them. Uh, just lots of different groups. And I was like, wow, this is an amazing place, right? So I've been involved in the disability rights movement ever since. Obviously, being a blind person, you know, I've been very involved um, with both organizations, ACB and NFB. And I guess I would say, you know, since I was an adult and I, I started working in the disability space, my focus has been economic justice and financial empowerment uh, I started my career at the Center for Independent Living in Berkeley, moving quickly to the World Institute on Disability, um, where I worked for 16 years and eventually became the executive director and really spent a lot of time out of the country. I was very interested, you know, in how other cultures dealt with disability and blindness in particular. So 
the World Institute on Disability had an international division, uh, which I was involved with and ultimately led. And um, I, I was you know, very taken with the idea that the world, not only the US, but, but other countries were taking the issue of disability rights seriously. So I spent a lot of time in other countries in the 90s. In the 2000s, I realized that like, wow, man, there's still so much work to do here. And I was very lucky that I was able to get some money from the Department of Education to lead a project called Proyecto Vision, which was really focusing on the Latino disability community and, and jobs and employment. My passion has really been, like I said, around financial economic justice, how we are, you know, people with disabilities that want to work, how can we work, people with disabilities that are able to work. Uh, so that has been really um, kind of the driving force in my work. In 2009, I was nominated by President Obama and confirmed by the Senate to be an Assistant Secretary of Labor for the Office of Disability Employment Policy. And that gave me the opportunity to really help put things in place, right? But we never do things alone. Um, and so I was able to launch a project called Add Us In, where we brought minority-owned businesses together and helped work with them to hire more people with disabilities. That relationship has you know, lasted for like uh, probably 12 years. And I know that a, a lot of the minority business organizations you know, are still include disability in their recruitings. So I, I feel very proud of that. Also, in the time that I was um, Assistant Secretary, Section 503 got passed. I cannot take credit for it. My office certainly worked on it. But um, Pat Chu at Office of uh, Federal Contract Compliance Programs, you know, had a lot to do with it. And of course, you know, the White House had to agree to establish the executive order. So because of that executive order, I was the spokesperson or one of them to talk to folks about actually getting jobs with federal contractors who, you know, had large workforces. So, you know, the idea behind Section 503 is that the large contractors uh, are striving for a 7% utilization goal, and that can include people that, that currently exist in their employment or people that they hire. So, you know, after a year uh, or six months or to a year of, of talking about people should do this, people, we really need to see people go into corporate, uh, I thought, well, what am I doing here? I, I should really, you know, kind of walk the walk, right? As a leader and, you know, to get out of the way at the Department of Labor so another leader could lead. So I did. I decided I should move on and make room for somebody else. So I would look for a job for a while and was lucky enough to get recruited by Wells Fargo. I had been in the disability bubble pretty much my whole working life, at least my whole paid working life. But going to Wells Fargo was a lesson in, <laughs> it is sort of a, a reality check for folks that really are out there not in the disability bubble. I would say that, you know, I was pretty lucky. There were some bumps in my onboarding experience, but the will to get things right was there. Just learning, folks had to learn. And I think we have to give people the opportunity to learn. 
Fortunately, there were other blind folks at, at the bank. Um, so I was able to you know, ask questions, a lot of them. It was a learning curve like no other that I've ever had in my life. Not only did I have to learn how to survive outside the disability bubble, I had to learn how to be productive without a lot of help. And so that meant that I really had to up my game when it came to technology. My sister happens to be a much better tech user than I am. Uh, so I think Peggy got sick of me calling her up and saying, how do you do this? How do you do that? I have to get this done really quick. Uh, she was very patient and kind. And then, of course, other folks in the bank were very helpful. But it really forced me to learn how to use JAWS better. I'm not saying I'm perfect by any means, but I, I had to learn how to get stuff done on my own. At Wells Fargo, my job was to lead their disability and accessibility strategy. And I was there for six years. When I left, there had been quite a bit of change. I cannot emphasize enough that Wells Fargo was, uh, and is, I'm, I'm presuming, there's amazing folks there. I could not have accomplished what we accomplished alone. There was you know, significant change around physical access, digital access. But I think the most important thing was the cultural change in the bank. We created lots of opportunity for conversation. We created a community of practice of uh, recruiters and hiring managers so folks could ask questions without feeling afraid to you know, say something politically incorrect or wrong. Um, we wanted to create a safe space you know, so we could have these conversations. We also had lots of fireside chats and panels and, and a variety of discussions about different disabilities. I refuse to be the token disabled person. I think it's a bad place for me. It, was a, it, it would be a, a bad place for whoever, or for the bank, right? So, you know, definitely very insistent that we get a cadre of speakers representing a variety of disabilities, representing a variety of ethnicities, the broadest cadre of storytellers that we could get. Because I think when you have one person being the token blind person or the token disabled person, it's not only bad for the person, but it's bad for the company. So one of the things that I'm really proud of and was a total team effort was, you know, the fact that we were able to have more open conversations about a variety of disabilities, including non-evident disabilities. And that, I think, really did change the culture. Um, you know, it, it made people less fearful to come out at work. So when I left, the percentage of people that identified as having a disability was close to seven. I think it was around 6.5. Um, and that's a public figure. So I'm, I'm proud of that. Again, it was, it was a group effort. There's, I, mean, I could never have done it. There, Wells Fargo has a, a workforce of 250,000 people. So as you, know, you can imagine, it takes a, a village to make those types of changes. So I realized that there was very qualified and capable leaders to take over the work. And again, it was time for me to move on. So since March, I have been leading Disability Rights Advocates, which is a high-impact litigation nonprofit law firm. And I have to say, I never expected to lead a group of brilliant lawyers being a non-lawyer. But I was, you know, when I, I saw the job announcement, I was, it drew me. And I have, I will say, I have benefited from many of the cases that DRA has filed. 
I'm really proud to be part of this team that works to advance equal rights and opportunity for all people with disabilities, including those of us who are blind. We use the law as an instrument for social change, the goal being to weave access into all aspects of opportunity. I was used to say at ODEP, at the Office of Disability Employment Policy, we don't want to be on the special shelf or in a special office or in a special school or separate. And I think, you know, DRA, over DRA's nearly 30 years, we've taken on more and more cases that have essentially put the meat on the bones of the ADA, along with other amazing law firms. I mean, we're certainly not the only one, but we are, DRA has done a lot of good work. So I've been at the helm for five months, and then DRA has been around for nearly 30 years, um, resulting in about 500 cases fighting for increased equity for people with disabilities, including our partnership with ACB. One of the cases I'm really proud of is that we litigated a case which resulted in conditions to put in place COVID precautions uh, for people with disabilities and people with other risk factors in the immigration and customs enforcement detention facilities. So as a result, thousands of people were released from detention. And for those who, who remained in the detention centers, better care, treatment, and protocols are now in place. Equally, as I said, I'm proud of all the work that we've done over the years with ACB and the State Councils of the Blind. Um, Very recently, as you probably have heard, a federal judge ordered the state of North Carolina to provide absentee voting ballots for folks with visual impairments. You know, more than 30 years after the passage of the Americans with Disabilities Act, NC voters who are blind or visually impaired finally have access or will have access to a ballot. We're also working with ACB on APS or accessible pedestrian signal cases. We currently have two cases to ensure that street crossings are more accessible in both Chicago and New York. And we've worked together on cases regarding audio description, uh, namely Netflix and Hulu. I just want to say that, you know, it's an honor uh, to work with ACB. You guys have a lot of brilliant folks on on your teams. And, you know, really, the more we work together, the more we will succeed in achieving access and opportunity for everyone. Remember, guys, leadership is a team sport. I think I'll end there. Thank you very much, Dan. Anything else? Thank you so much. That was really, it was wonderful to hear kind of your life journey. So throughout your career, you served not only in non-for-profit, but in agencies and under uh, the Obama administration, and then moved into the private sector, which is where I spent a lot of my career. And now you're back, you know, kind of in disability rights. So What were your challenges and your rewards? I mean, it just, you know, it's separate, different segments of employment. What did you take away as you kind of made that life journey? So much. I mean, I've had so many amazing mentors and, you know, people that pushed me harder 
I just think they pushed me harder than I ever thought I could be pushed. As a young person, one of the other experiences I had was I lived in Mexico. My partner and I adopted our son there, and I was so judgmental. I remember going to an ACB conference in the 70s, and I saw people from other countries there, and they were being guided around. And I thought, oh my God, what's wrong? You know, these guys, why don't they know how to use their canes? And I was super judgmental until I lived in a developing country Mm -hmm. where you have to be guided around. There's just no way because you can't anticipate the barriers that you're going to find. Even, you know, walking a few blocks, there's just not the same infrastructure that we have here, at least those of us in the city. So that's what really inspired me to get involved in international work because I was so judgmental at that conference. And then I, when I moved to Mexico, I lived in Mexico, I realized, wow, now I really get it. And, you know, there's not the understanding of disability as a social construct. It's changing. And that was in the, in the early 80s. So, you know, mm-hmm. things have changed. I think the takeaway is that things are getting better. We still, you know, live with stigma and people still have low expectations. But I feel that things are getting better. If you're as old as me, then we remember before the ADA when the accessibility factor was on us. Nobody thought that society should have a role in making itself accessible. So just, you know, surviving in a world that wasn't built for us wasn't, I mean, it's still going on. We're still, you know, surviving and and we're still struggling. But I think um, now at least folks know that they have to make things accessible. In certain spheres, that's true. You know, for me, I love learning. So I have forced myself to get out of my comfort zone. And other people have forced me to get out of my comfort zone. So I can't take full credit. But, you know, it was really hard. I mean, I was excited to work for Wells Fargo. But I was also like, I don't know anything about the financial services industry, nor have I ever worked in a place where people don't get the concept of disability and accommodations. So when I went there, I had to prove myself as a contributor to my team. But after I did, and after people got to know me, as you probably know, you know, things calmed down. And and of course, I needed help. I needed to remind people that they had to provide me accessible documentation. But eventually, they got it. It became part of their DNA, eventually. It took time. And it wasn't perfect, but, you know, nothing is perfect. I agree with you. It's kind of, you know, I I work for an international company, Siemens, with, you know, 400,000 employees around the world. And and the expectations, uh, well, first, just in private enterprise, I think the expectations are always so low coming in as a disabled person, as a blind person, that kind of in a weird way, it made it easy to perform well because it was easy to beat expectations, right? Because of what people thought you were capable of. Well, in my life I have, yes, there are advantages to, to low, you know, having low expectations. It's not a good thing, but I'm just saying it's reality. Yeah. Right. But this is the thing that was different in situations. I mean, I like, for example, at Wells Fargo, I was hired as a senior vice president. So there was an expectation that I would perform. And I had to because, you know, in corporate, you know, it's a bottom line, right? Especially at a bank. Although I do believe Wells Fargo is a bank with heart. It's still a bank. So 
I was almost scared of the expectations that were put on me to perform. I mean, it, I was like, oh my God, they really expect me to do this. Mm-hmm. So I have to do it. I don't know how. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, you're always was, learning. And the other part of that, which I found really interesting, was you would go, you know, I know as a project manager, I went for the first time to a meeting, you know, across the pond and, you know, there I am and, you know, meeting all my German colleagues and they're really their expectation was or thoughts were what, what in the world is this guy doing here, right? So, so my personal challenge was how do I perform at a level so in a month when we have our next meeting, they're wanting Dan Spoon to be at that meeting because I'm adding value. You know, you, you have to prove that value. And I'm sure you've experienced that throughout your life. Well, it is true. I mean, that's part of our system. You've got to add value. Whether, you know, I agree with that or not, I think it's true, especially if you're in a corporation. They don't mess around. It ultimately is about the bottom line. You know, I think some corporations used to say it's the right thing to do. But the thing that I, I, I guess I would say is, that the goal for me and the goal for me, at, you know, in my life is to weave accessibility into systems, mm-hmm. not have special, because yep. when budgets get tight, special disappears, right? So Correct. anything yes. separate or special and anything that's personality-based. So, you know, in some companies, when the passionate cheerleader uh, for disability leaves, the whole program falls apart. So the goal, I think, for us as a disability community is to continue to work with other diverse groups, LGBTQ, and I just want to give a shout out to the Blind Pride folks. And, you know, folks in the aging community where vision loss is prevalent, I think the next frontier is to really weave disability into the social justice movements and see disability as not special. So see disability or accessibility as standard operating practice as part of a system so that when the champion of disability leaves, the system doesn't fall apart. Make it part of the institutional knowledge. I really enjoyed your comments related to the Latino community and the Hispanic community. And American Council of Blind is working very hard through our Multicultural Affairs Committee to really strengthen our outreach. And so with your wonderful background and and experience there, what is the best way for us to connect with the Latino community as we are growing now a special uh, subcommittee under our Multicultural Affairs to, to focus on Spanish language and outreach? Well, congratulations for that. Um, now, I, I, I'm very proud of the disability community for, especially in the last few years, really making efforts to diversify. I think that's really critical. If you think about it, the Latino community actually has a higher incidence of disability than a lot of other communities due to high injury jobs, due to bad health care, due to secondary conditions related to diabetes and hypertension a lot of these these secondary disabilities result in low vision or blindness. So yay for you. I think the best thing you can do, uh, it's like when they ask me, what's the best training for hiring a person with a disability? The answer is hire a person with a disability. (laughs) Yes. The same goes for, you know, anybody that you want to weave in to your culture, you've got to bring in Latinos, Spanish speakers. I just think that that's the answer. You've got to weave in the change that you want to see into, into your own staff. 
Uh, that's really it, you know, because, and, and really me, we are not a homogenous group. You know, Latinos have as many differing opinions, political stripes, sexual orientation as any other group. So it's a complicated but amazing journey when we weave all types of difference into our workforces. That was Kathy Martinez, President and CEO of Disability Rights Advocates. You've been listening to ACB Reports from the American Council of the Blind. ACB Reports is heard each month on audio information services across the United States and around the world on the ACB Media Network at acbmedia.org. The program is produced at Radio Reading Service of Mississippi, a service of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Contact the American Council of the Blind online at acb.org or phone 800-424-8666. Thanks for listening, and please join us again next month for another edition of ACB Reports.